Well, I can't think of a better song to sing leading us into uh, our sermon this morning, where we're continuing our series uh, called Letters to the Church. We're considering in this series uh, eight of uh, the Apostle Paul's epistles, letters to different churches, as we seek to learn what God desires for his people. And this week, we've come to the letter of Colossians and Paul's call for the church is to be filled with the knowledge of Jesus Christ, who is preeminent in all things. And so as we sung and, and in that prayed that the Lord would show us Christ, I cannot think of a better epistle to come to, in which we will come to know Christ. So I'd encourage you to open your Bibles there to Colossians. Colossians, if you uh, don't have a Bible with you or would like to follow along in the same translation, you can use that black pew Bible there in front of you and open to page 983. As you open there, I did want to make just one note. Uh, this book is called Captivated by Christ. I wish I had extra. I didn't think about doing this until yesterday, and I didn't have time to order them. But if you want a, a copy of this, it's a book uh, by Richard Chin on uh, his kind of sermons that he wrote and, and then turned into a book on the book of Colossians. Much uh, of my thought has been processed through uh, this book. The highest recommendation I can give it is that on summer vacations, I never finish reading books. But I finished this one because it was that good. So uh, if you would like to learn more of that book, come see me. Uh, and, and I'm grateful for the work that that, that brother has done. Well, let me uh, pray once more for the hearing of God's word and the proclaiming of it. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help this morning as we seek to know more of Christ from Colossians. Father, your word promises that the unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. So Lord, we, 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 we pray that promise that you would do that, that you would unfold your words before us, that you would give us a knowledge of who you are in Christ, that you would give wisdom to the simple. Father, with this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. That's true for you, but not for me. That's true for you, but not for me. Probably not what you expected to hear this morning as you came. But we've all heard that phrase, right? If, if not said that phrase, many of us, if not all of us, have, have said it. It is a mark of our day. And the, the idea behind that phrase is this idea of subjective truth, that, that there are truths that, that are true for you and truths that are true for me. And this has been, been this way for a long time. In 2002... There was a study done by the Barna Group that showed 83% of teenagers did not believe in absolute truth. And those who were teenagers then are now middle-aged. That was 20 years ago. They are our neighbors, our friends, maybe your children, our grandchildren, co-workers, and bosses. And so as we consider this idea of subjective truth, it's, it's not just affected our world, but it affects how, how our world views religion. When it comes to religion, tolerance becomes the key word. No one religion is the, the source of truth, but rather there are bits of truths from different religions. So we begin to, to see people practice what, what was called a religious smorgasbord. And this religious relativism affects even how we view Christ. See, religious relativism downplays Jesus. He becomes one of many great teachers, one of many paths. A prominent path, but not preeminent. Max Stiles, in his book on evangelism, which uh, we discussed yesterday as a, as a book club, tells the story of a conversation that he had with a Muslim 
who said something to the effect of, you and I aren't very different. I just believe Jesus is a great prophet or teacher. Friends, this is what has happened in our culture. Jesus is is made to be equal with men like Muhammad and Buddha and Gandhi and Joseph Smith. And so rather than looking to Jesus as the only way, as the preeminent one, each of us in our lives are being pressured to accept that there is more than one way to find God. That salvation is universal and we're all on our own paths to understanding and meaning. And this, I would suggest to you, is why we need the letter to the Colossians. See, as as we read and understand and believe the truth that we will see here in Colossians, we will be ready for the pressures of our relativistic world. Colossians will call us to a more full understanding of Jesus, who's not merely prominent, but is preeminent in all things. Colossians was likely written around the same time that Philippians was, while Paul was imprisoned in Rome. We see that he's imprisoned in in chapter 4, verse 18, at the end of the letter. Colossians is unique from all the other letters we're considering because Colossians is the, the church at Colossae is the only church Paul did not plant that, that we're con- in the letters that we're considering. He's never met these people. It's likely uh, that Epaphras, who's mentioned in chapter 1, verse 7, is the one who brought the gospel to Colossae. He's the church planter, quote, unquote. And Epaphras probably heard the gospel while Paul was in Ephesus for those two years. And Epaphras, after hearing that, took the gospel back to Colossae, and he preached, just an ordinary man, preaching the gospel, and people save, and the church is built. And so Epaphras then went to visit Paul while he was in prison in Rome. We see that in chapter 4. And he's told him all these good things going on in Colossae. We see Paul giving thanks to God for this good report that Epaphras has brought back. But it wasn't all good news. There's some pressures coming upon the believers in Colossae to minimize Jesus Christ. And so Paul has written this letter so that the church would be filled with the knowledge of God. This is what we see in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Listen, Paul writes, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Rather than being captivated by these false teachers, Paul longs to see God work in the church so that they are filled with the knowledge of Jesus in whose kingdom they now belong. This kingdom as they've been rescued through God's redemption and forgiveness in Christ. And so that's our big idea this morning. Hopefully you've already caught a sense of it. It is to be filled with the knowledge of Jesus Christ who is the preeminent Lord of all. This is what Paul is saying in Colossians. Be filled with the knowledge of Jesus Christ, who is the preeminent Lord of all. They're being pressured by philosophies and empty deceits, and in response, they are to be captivated by Christ. Friends, us as a church here at Cyber Baptist are to be captivated by knowledge of Jesus, who is preeminent in all things. Be filled with the knowledge of Jesus Christ, who is the preeminent Lord of all. Well, to begin, we're going to do something a little different than what we've done the last few weeks. We're going to try and and give us the big picture of Colossians, what I've just said, this one-sentence summary, by summarizing the whole book by going through each of the paragraphs in the ESV translation and summarizing those with one sentence. And this was... Uh, this is a big task, so I, I'd encourage you to open your Bibles if you have a Bible. And, and, and if you don't have the ESV, I'd encourage you to open the ESV. It'll be a little bit easier to track with what I'm going to say. 
We'll summarize each paragraph with the, with the same sense that Paul's using. So if I say I, I'm not talking about me, Paul. I'm talking about the Apostle Paul. Here it goes, starting with chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Grace and peace from Paul, who is an apostle by God's will, and Timothy to the brothers in Colossae. We give God thanks for your faith in Christ and love for others rooted in the divine hope that you have heard about from Epaphras. We pray that you would be filled with the knowledge of the will of Jesus so that you might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord who has redeemed you from the domain of darkness. It is this Lord Jesus who as the firstborn of creation and the head of the church is preeminent in everything. You who were once alienated are reconciled in this preeminent Jesus if you endure in the faith to the end. I rejoice in my sufferings because through me God is making the riches of Christ known to all. Continuing now into chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Though I have not seen you, I struggle on your behalf so that you might know the treasures of wisdom in Christ so as not to be deceived. Therefore, having received Christ, walk firmly in him, abounding in thanksgiving. Don't be captive to empty messages and false rulers. Rather, remember you are filled with Christ, who is your head. Filled with Christ who has disarmed the rulers and authorities in his death on the cross. Don't allow others to judge you or disqualify you, insisting on lesser things. Instead, hold fast to the substance of Christ who is your head. In fact, self-made religion and aestheticism cannot stop the indulgence of your flesh. Only your union with Christ can do that. Moving into chapters 3, verses 1 through 4. Having been raised with Christ through your union with him, set your mind on him in the heavenly realms. Put off the sins of the old flesh because you are being made new in the image of your creator. Put on righteousness as God's chosen ones, letting the peace of Christ and word of Christ rule in your hearts with thanksgiving. Serve the Lord in your homes as wives, husbands, children, and bondservants by working for the Lord and not men. Finally, we move into chapter, the final chapter, chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants with the knowledge that you have a master in heaven. Continue in prayer for me that God would allow me to con- declare the mystery of Christ clearly. Walk in wisdom towards others so as to give good and gracious answers to each person. Receive Tychicus and Onesimus and the reports they bring, for they are faithful brothers and servants. I am thankful to report and send the greetings of brothers and sisters from all over to you. I, Paul, am the author of this letter, demonstrated as I write with my own hand. Well, there it is. The whole letter of Colossians in just three paragraphs. And in this letter, the call to be filled with the knowledge of Jesus Christ, who is the preeminent Lord of all. But how does this look in the church? How, do, how, do we, how are we filled with the knowledge of Jesus Christ? Well, I submit four ways from the book of Colossians. First, believe in the preeminent Christ. Second, beware of false teaching. Third, be focused on the risen Christ. And fourth, be partnered with other servants. Believe, beware, be focused, and be partnered. Let's start first with our first point. Believe in the preeminent Christ. See, to to be filled in Christ, to be filled with Christ, is more than just to be merely fascinated with or impressed by Jesus. See, to, to be filled in Jesus means we must believe in the real Jesus. And that's what Paul in Colossians gives us. He gives us the real Jesus, a a wondrous and glorious picture of who this Jesus is. Our understanding of Jesus is, is first built actually on knowing God the Father, who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to verse 3 of chapter 1. 
And the father we read in, in chapter 1 verse 13 has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus is first presented to us as the beloved son of our father in whom we have redemption and forgiveness. Paul then comes to chapter 1 verses 15 through 20 and hear what he writes of this beloved son. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Friends, brothers, sisters, there is no one who can rival this Jesus. He is the perfect image of the invisible God. As the divine son, he alone perfectly reveals and reflects God to us. We read this in John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus is not rivaled. One of the reasons Jesus is not rivaled is because he is the firstborn of all creation. That is, he reigns as supreme over creation. And why is this? Well, because Paul says, by him all things were created. This includes not only the physical realm, but the spiritual realm. Look at verse 16. All things in in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things are created by, through, and for Jesus. Friends, you and I and everything else in creation were created in Christ and for Christ. Jesus is unrivaled. And as the unrivaled king, he holds all things together and is before all things Jesus is Lord over all creation. But he's not just Lord of creation. Look, Paul continues in in chapter 1, verse 18, that he is the Lord of the church, the head of the body. He is the beginning of the church. The, The church has no orientation. It doesn't begin unless Christ comes. Without the head, the body would not function or exist. And so Jesus is the head of the church. He is the firstborn from the dead. That is, he's the first one risen again, resurrected. Jesus is the Lord of the church. This church, brothers and sisters, this church is Jesus' church. And so we submit to him as our preeminent Lord. This church belongs to him because it was his work that saved us. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the head and we are his body. Well, as Lord of creation... And of the church, Jesus is preeminent in everything. See, Jesus surpasses all others. There is no one more sovereign or who reigns more supremely than this Jesus. In fact, we see his sovereignty and supremacy stretch from creation to new creation because he is God incarnate. So we see in verse 19, in everything he might be preeminent. Why? For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus as the God-man, fully God and fully man, the, the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily, according to chapter 2, verse 9. This Jesus is supreme and sovereign. 
He is unmatched, the truly preeminent Lord. Lord of creation, Lord of the church, and even more so, Lord of reconciliation. In in there, chapter 1, verse 20, through him he has reconciled to himself all things through the blood of the cross. You can think of this reconciliation as a Jesus bringing a true, final, and peaceful order to the universe. All things here refers to both earthly and spiritual things. One, one illustration I read about this this week is like an accountant reconciles the books of a business to bring all the financials into order, Jesus now reconciles all things in heaven and on earth in order through his work on the cross. Some of these things will be reconciled willingly as we receive Jesus to be Lord. But some things will be reconciled unwillingly through everlasting judgment. But order, Paul says, will be brought in heaven and on earth. And this is just and right of God, for we all deserve his judgment. That's what we see in verse 21, that before Christ we were hostile strangers to God, enemies of God, working against him with our evil deeds. But part of Christ's work of reconciliation is is to bring about reconciliation willingly through his body. This is what we read about in, in verse 22. Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Friends, we who were once hostile strangers who worked against God, those who would have never come to God on our own, have been made right with God in Christ. Jesus is Lord of our reconciliation. We have been reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. We were, made the, right, we were the right recipients of God's wrath, but have seen that wrath poured out on Christ. The preeminent Lord of all humbled himself by taking on him, by becoming a a man, living a life without sin, coming among those who were hostile and dying on a cross that he might present us holy and blameless. And this all comes through faith. We are reconciled to God, not on our own work, but through the faith in the work that Jesus has done. But Paul's point in verse 20 is to say, you will be reconciled with God either through everlasting judgment or you will be reconciled with God through faith in the preeminent Lord as Savior. Jesus is preeminent. And therefore, it is this Jesus that the Apostle Paul is striving to proclaim. It is this Jesus that the Apostle Paul will joyfully suffer for so that he can make him known to all people. It is this Jesus that Paul struggles and toils to proclaim as Christ powerfully works within him. Just read in in chapter 1, verse 28, Paul writes, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And why does Paul proclaim this Jesus? Why does he struggle and toil? Because in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See, friends, Jesus is preeminent in creation. He's preeminent in the church. He's preeminent in reconciliation. And he's preeminent in all wisdom and knowledge. There is no higher wisdom than knowing Jesus, crucified and risen. He surpasses all understandings. No other message can match. No other wisdom rises to that level. Jesus is king of kings, preeminent in everything. Well, this leaves us with a question. Who do you believe Jesus is? 
Do you believe Jesus is the one presented to us in Colossians? Or is Jesus merely prominent in your life? You see, you may have come here this morning merely enamored by Jesus, fascinated by him, fascinated at at his teachings, that he might be a great prophet or teacher, but not truly understanding who Jesus is and therefore not filled with the knowledge of Christ. Colossians 1 is clear. If we are to be filled with the knowledge of Jesus, we must first believe that he is the preeminent Lord of creation and new creation. So friends, believe in this Jesus. Faith in this Jesus who reigns and rules over all things will save. But Paul writes not only for us to to know and and come to, to be saved by this Jesus, he writes so that we may not be deceived, that we might not be deluded. That's what we come to see in our next point, that one of the ways we are filled with the knowledge of Christ is through being aware of false teaching. Look at verses 2, 4, and 5. This is why Paul has labored to make Christ known. This is why he's writing to them now. Why he's told us of this glorious picture of Christ. He says in verse 4 of chapter 2, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. See, the apostle doesn't want the church at Colossae to be deceived. He knows there are some who are making arguments for belief structures that downplay the necessity of Jesus and make more of human wisdom. This is what we see in chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. We don't know exactly what these philosophies or teachings were, but whatever they were, they're dangerous because they took the Colossians away from Christ. And here's an important point, friends. Any philosophy or belief system that originates not in Jesus, but from the world, is dangerous. To be captivated by those things and not Christ will lead us away from Christ. Colt and I were discussing this earlier in the week. We know that, that we live in an age where politics and political parties have religious fervor. You may have even experienced that yesterday if you went to downtown Fredericksburg as they were holding a, a pride parade, promoting with fervor a worldly philosophy of understanding self and sex. But it's all around us in this world and in politics. These worldly philosophies that that seek to address problems or assess problems apart from Christ. So how do we see them? How do we decide what is worldly and what is not? Well, a good sign that something is not of Christ is that it does not address sin. If you look through the the letters of Colossians, Colossians, you see that, that Paul takes sin seriously. That he understands our need for Jesus. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 21. We'll see that in in chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. In chapter 3, verse 5, sin is serious. So Paul is clear as he points us to Jesus, that that we need Jesus because because of our sin. So friends, beware of political philosophies that seek to create ultimate peace in our world without first addressing sin. These worldly philosophies will lead us away from Christ. Any philosophy that makes little of Jesus and exalts the power of man or denies the pervading nature of our sin will fail. These cannot stand. 
But often I, I think we can, we can see those alternatives, those, those, those ones that, that reject sin outright, reject Christ outright. But there are other more subtle alternatives that we see in Colossians. Particularly in Colossians 2, verses 16 through 23, here it's, Paul is, is telling the Colossians, there seems to be some that, that are telling the Colossians that Christ was not enough. Look at verse 16. Paul writes, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. Friends, there were some that said that the true path to spiritual maturity was through following certain rules, practicing aestheticism. That is practicing extreme self-denial. What you see in, in chapter 2, verse 21. This, don't handle these, don't, don't do that, don't taste that, don't touch that. As if from restraining from handling certain things and, and eating certain things as a way we can be made closer to God. Seems these people had, had boasted about great visions, puffed and built themselves up. Instead of Christ above all things, it became Christ plus other things. Christ plus religious rules. Christ plus religious forms. In church, Christ plus anything else is to forsake Christ altogether. Those things are, are merely shadows. When someone says to be a Christian means that, that you have to worship on a certain day or restrain from eating certain things, they are returning to those which are shadows. But Christ is the substance. So I wonder if, if when I say Christ plus what is it that you add on to Christ? What is it that you make to stand on equal footing with Jesus? Do you have to be a member of a certain political party to be a faithful and growing Christian? Do you have to read a, a certain Bible translation? Do you have to meet in a certain place? Do you have to practice certain programs? Wear certain clothes? Those things, Paul says in verse 23 of chapter 2, have no power in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. These alternatives to Christ, these, these competitors to the preeminent Lord have no power. So what does have power? Or better question, who has the power? Well, it is Jesus. To fight these false teachings, we need to be filled with Christ. When we read verse 8 a little earlier, we saw Paul says, don't be captivated by philosophy and empty deceits according to human tradition and not, not to Christ. Well, why? Why are these dangerous? Well, look with me at, at, at chapter 2, starting in verse 9. Why is it? Why are they not to be taken captive? Because it's for in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also were you circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Here, Jesus is presented as the God-man. 
who through his death and resurrection has disarmed the rulers and authorities of this world, triumphing over them. And as those who believe in Jesus are then united to him by their faith. So brothers and sisters, we've been united to Jesus. We've been united to the one that has disarmed the rulers and authorities that promote these worldly philosophies. In fact, I think this is what it means in part to be filled with Jesus. To be filled with Jesus is to be united to Christ. As one author said, to be filled in Christ is to have all the benefits of Christ's life, death, and resurrection because we are united with him. You see, in his death and resurrection, Christ takes our sins upon him. Every sin and evil deed that would have rightly provoked God's perfect wrath and justice has now been nailed to the cross, Paul says, and set aside in Christ. This is something, Paul says, only Jesus could do. And so friends, I want to encourage you that apart from Christ, no matter what religious practices you do, no matter how well you discipline yourself, you cannot be made right with God. The only way to be made right with God is through being united to Jesus Christ by faith and repentance. Now that doesn't mean that we shouldn't read our Bibles, we shouldn't pray, we shouldn't practice self-discipline. But if you, if you raise those things to the level of, of with Christ, as if you have to be saved to do those things, then you've lost Christ altogether. And you've begun participating in these worldly philosophies. But Paul says they've been disarmed. They have no power. Therefore, as you've received Christ, right? This is a church. They've, they've heard of Jesus. They've received Jesus. So Paul says, walk in him. That's what we see in Colossians 2, 6, and 7. The only foundation that will withstand the earthquakes of temptations and false teachings that will come our way is found in Jesus Christ, being rooted and built up in him as we abound in thanksgiving. Therefore, Paul says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Beware, church, of worldly philosophies that seek to downplay the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is only through our union that we are filled with the the knowledge of Jesus, who is the preeminent Lord of all. These worldly philosophies and empty deceits have no value in stopping us from sinning, It is only as we are filled with the knowledge of Jesus, as we set our minds on the risen Christ, will we mature in Christ. And this is what we come to in our our third point. This third way we are filled with the knowledge of Jesus Christ is we focus on the risen Christ. Be focused on the risen Christ. Well, as you saw in our overview, when when we summarized each of the paragraphs, The Apostle Paul spent most of his time early on in the letter helping us see who Jesus is. This is what we've we've just seen. Jesus is the, the preeminent Lord. So if we are to be filled with the knowledge of Jesus Christ, we need to know who Jesus is. We need to believe in that Jesus, and we need to beware of competitors that seek to to compete against Christ. But since those competitors fail to, to lead to actual life change, to actual transformation. Christians are to set our minds on the risen Christ by which we are transformed. And so Paul moves from the the truth of what Jesus has done to now living in light of that truth in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Hear what Paul writes. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. 
For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Well, having accomplished the work of salvation, having said that it was finished, we read in the, the Gospels and in Acts that Jesus ascended to heaven. Jesus is the exalted Messiah, the preeminent Lord who has now taken his seat at the right hand of God the Father, as was promised in Psalm 110. And so, if we are united with Christ in his death, that which we just considered in chapter 2, we are also united with Christ in his resurrection and ascension. Yet being united with Christ doesn't mean that we just ascend, right? When you believed in Jesus, you didn't magically float up into heaven, We're very much firmly planted here on earth with our feet and our lives. But we are to live as if we were in heaven with Christ. And this starts by setting our minds to him. One author put it this way. We are to seek to live a heavenly life now, even as we remain on earth. This is what Paul is calling Christian churches to do. Through our union with Christ, we're no longer citizens of of this earth only, but we are citizens of heaven. And so we are to seek to live a heavenly life here and now. To be filled with the knowledge of Jesus Christ as preeminent Lord is to be transformed as we set our minds on Him. So this week, brothers and sisters, set your mind on Christ. Be focused on Him. Don't let the things of this world distract you from looking to Jesus. Well, Paul, what does Paul say is kind of what happens when we set our minds to Jesus. Well, first, we see the, the more we set our minds on the beauty and holiness of Christ, on his preeminence, on the things that are above, the more we begin to see our sin for what it truly is. See, the more we set our minds on the beauty and holiness of Christ, the, the more we see our sin for what it is. And as we see it for what it is, we put it to death. We would have zero tolerance for our sin. And and this only comes as we set our mind on the greatest pleasure in life, who is Christ. This is what Paul says in Colossians 3, 5 through 9. Having called us to set our minds on Jesus, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Paul highlights two areas of our our lives where sin has a tight hold of us. First, we see in verse 5, sins of sexual immorality. In our culture that promotes true self-expression and individual freedom and pleasure, sexual sins are rampant. From the evils of pornography to homosexuality to adultery to lustful desires and thoughts and much more, all of us have participated in and been affected by sexual sin. But not only sexual sin, Paul says sins of speech, sins of gossip and slander, anger and rage, malice and prejudice, filthy language and lying. These sins are not uncommon to us. You and I have each found ourselves probably doing that this very week. Yet all sins, Paul says, are deadly. He writes in verse 6, on account of these 
these sins, the wrath of God is coming. God's wrath will be poured out on sinners. Therefore, Paul, I think, says we cannot just let sin hang around. But there's good news for those who are in Christ. As we set our mind on Christ, we begin to see our sin for what it is and are able to put it to death. So, brothers and sisters, does this mark your life? Are you killing sin? Do you find yourself seeking the pleasure of Christ more than the pleasures of this world? Or are you putting up with sin? Are you letting it hang around instead of doing everything you can to kill it? As we set our mind on the beauty of Christ, on what we've read in Colossians 1 and 2, His preeminence, He's Lord of creation and the church and reconciliation, we are enabled to, to put to death sin. We, we begin to take pleasure in Christ more than we do the pleasures of this world. But not only that, not only do we begin to, to kill sin, the, the more we set our minds on the beauty and holiness on, of Christ, on His preeminence, the more we begin to reflect Jesus in every sphere of life. That is, we're not just shedding the old clothes, but we're putting on new ones. The reality of those who believe in Christ is that we're being filled with the knowledge of Jesus and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We don't just put off the old, but we put on the new. My son Aaron's favorite thing to do right now is is to go outside and play in the dirt. And we have a little kiddie pool right next to the dirt, which is a great idea. And he gets often very muddy and gross. And when he comes inside, we immediately undress him. Take off all those dirty clothes. But then Aaron wants to just run around. He enjoys that part. He doesn't like being redressed. But friends, he's incomplete. Like you can't go around living life like that, just taking off the dirty clothes and not putting on new clothes. And so as we set our minds on Jesus Christ, if we're just killing sin, we're, we're only doing half of what Paul says. The, the more we set our minds on Christ, the more we are renewed in his image and we begin to put on righteousness in every sphere of life. Every sphere of our life is affected as we put on this new self. And this starts with how we relate to other Christians. So the, 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 the first sphere of, of our life that's affected is our church life. That's what we see in chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. It's a, it's a wonderful list. And I would suggest to you that that they each have to do with how we relate to one another in the church. We'll read just a few verses. Look at at verses 12 through 14. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I think verse 14 gives us the key to understanding what should mark our church life. That is, we ought to clothe ourselves with love. See, love is compassionate. Love is kind. Love is humble and meek. Love is patient and bears with others. Love forgives as God has forgiven us. Love enables us to live in harmony with one another, as we saw in verse 11. I wonder, friends... As you consider your life, are you marked by love for other brothers and sisters in this church? Are you compassionate towards their needs? Are you marked by patience? Are you quick to forgive them when they wrong you? Because guess what? You will be wronged, and you probably wrong others. Are you marked by love in your relationships with others at this church? 
The other major way, which we, we didn't read in verses 15 through 17, the other major mark of our church life as we set our minds on Christ is thankfulness. Three times in those three verses, Paul says, and be thankful. As the peace of Christ rules in our hearts, we're thankful. As the word of Christ dwells in his people, we're thankful. And in all that we do, we are to give thanks to God, the Father, through him. You know, it's a theme that we can't spend a lot of time on thinking here in in Colossians, but Thanksgiving is all throughout this book because Paul understands that Jesus has saved his people. It is the work of God, and so he must give thanks to God. Thankfulness is a mark of those who have seen Jesus. Friends, if you're setting your minds on Christ, you will be marked by thankfulness. I wonder how our relationships with others in this body would look if you and I were intentional to be thankful. We'd likely be slower towards anger, to being quick, to being annoyed with each other. So maybe as a fun exercise today, when you go to lunch, consider how you might give thanks to God for those sitting at the table with you. We spend most of our time there thinking about church life. As as we set our minds on God, the sphere of life, our church life is affected. But it also affects our, our home life and our work life. In our relationships with unbelievers, that's what we see in, in chapter 3, verses 18 through 4, 6. I'd encourage you to, to take some time to, to meditate on those verses today. Some of what you read will be similar to what we saw in Ephesians two weeks ago. And so what I'm just going to do is highlight three examples from, from this about how our home lives, our work lives, and our relationship with unbelievers are affected. First, our home lives. Verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So to the kids in the room, I know there are a few of you. Did you know that even though you are young, you are able to please the Lord? That as you obey your parents and everything, this brings glory to God? What an awesome thing that we're never too young to bring pleasure to our exalted king. Parents, you can help your parents. Help your parents. You can help your children obey you. But first, yeah, he calls kids to, to obey their parents as it pleases the Lord. So our home lives are, are affected in, in so many ways. Wives are submit to their husbands. Husbands to love their wives and not be harsh with them. Fathers aren't to provoke their children. So many ways our, our home lives are affected. But not only our home lives, our work lives. Starting in, in verse 22 through 4.1, I think Paul is using this example of, of, of or using this, this, uh, these uh, bond servants and, and masters that was more likely what we would we consider uh, employer and employee relationships in, in our day. We talked a bit about that in Ephesians. So for those of you who have jobs, how would your attitude at work differ if you worked not as a way of eye service to please people, but as a way of fearing the Lord with a sincere heart? Look at what Paul says in verse 23 of chapter 3. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not from for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. As you consider you're working not for the eyes of men, but for the eyes of the Lord, would that change your attitude towards bosses and co-workers or clients? So our work lives are affected, our, our home lives are affected, and, and finally, the, the sphere of our life in, in which we relate to others outside of, of Christians, we relate to unbelievers. And here I just want to highlight, do, do you understand the importance that our tone has, not just what we say, the content of our words? Look at, at chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. 
Paul writes, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how, to, how you ought to answer each person. Like mashed potatoes are better with some salt sprinkled on it, our words, no matter how true they are, are better when seasoned with grace. So I wonder if you say true things, but not in a gracious way. I think, again, this applies to our relationship with unbelievers primarily. But in all our conversations, are your words seasoned with grace? Well, we are filled with the knowledge of Jesus Christ, our preeminent Lord, as we set our minds on heaven where Christ is. As we know more of Jesus, our lives are drastically transformed. We put off sin and we put on righteousness. Not one area of our life is left out because Christ is all and is in all. The final way that I think Colossians says we are to be filled with the knowledge of Jesus Christ is through partnering with others. Be partnered with other servants. Paul's letter concludes in chapter 4 with the, the recommendations and greetings from many people. Interestingly, he calls the church of, at Colossae to send this letter to the church in Laodicea and then for Laodicea to, to send them their letter so they can read that one. So even here, we see that these letters were, were intended to be passed around and to benefit many Christians. This is a good argument for the inerrancy of our scripture and the, the canon that we have. But what I want to particularly note in this final section is that being filled with the knowledge of Jesus Christ doesn't happen apart from other believers. In fact, it happens best when we work with one another. We see this even in, in how all the characteristics that, that we have to put on have to do with our relationships with others. We can't live out most of those things apart from being in regular, committed relationships with one another, i.e., the church, where we are right now. I think Paul highlights so, three benefits of, of other servants in, and of how we can fill one another with the knowledge of Jesus. So these three benefits. First, we teach others. Teach others. Remember all the way back in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, that part of the reason Paul gives thanks to God is that the Colossians have learned God's word from Epaphras, their fellow servant. Friends, we need to learn Christ from others. And it's not just the responsibility of a, a few particular servants. No, this is the responsibility of every person. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Friends, we are to teach and admonishing one another, particularly as we sing. So in a few minutes, we're going to sing. Think about how you're teaching others by your singing and be taught by those to, to, to know more of Jesus. We're going to sing a, a, a great song of all glory be to Christ. Think about and hear others singing and be taught by them. That's one benefit. We teach others. The second benefit is we encourage others. Paul says in, in Colossians 4, verses 7 through 9, that he sends Tychicus to encourage their hearts. See, following Jesus isn't always easy. We need others to come alongside of us and to be encouragers. So that's one benefit. There are two benefits. Teach others, encourage others. The final benefit is that we can pray for others. That's what Paul does at the beginning of his letter in chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. He prays. But he also tells us in Ephesians 4, verses 12 and 13, that Epaphras is struggling in his prayers. Look at verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Friends, we need the prayer of others if we're going to be filled with Christ. We need to be praying for others to be filled with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's preeminent, Lord. 
Well, brothers and sisters, all of this that we've considered this morning, our believing, our union, our transformation, our partnership, our being filled with the knowledge of Jesus Christ is built upon Jesus and happens through Jesus. Jesus alone is preeminent Lord. It is his death and resurrection, which we'll remember in just a moment as we partake in the Lord's Supper, that saves and sanctifies and glorifies. All glory be to Christ. So brothers and sisters, this week, be filled with the knowledge of Jesus Christ, who is the preeminent Lord of all. Let's pray. Father, what a, a privilege it is that, that we can pray for one another. Lord, we give you thanks for the work that you have done in us and through us in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help us to treasure Christ above all other things. That he would reign as preeminent in our lives. Father, we pray that, that you would help us to stand mature and fully assured in all of what you have said this morning from your word that we might be filled with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.